But I got to say, Japan is back, and now it's again cool to be a Japan. Expert. Is that right? Oh yeah. Hello, konnichiwa. Welcome to Made with Japan. I am your host Ken Shibusawa. On this podcast, we will invite a wide range of interesting guests to learn why, where, what, and how. Japan can co-create well-being and prosperity with the world. So I'm、um, very glad to welcome Matthew Goodman to our show today.、We、go back a long way,、um, about 38 years. <laughs> so he's one of my oldest,、uh, and not age, but in terms of、uh, years of、uh, being a dear friend of mine. And, and Matthew is、uh, currently a senior vice president for economics and Simon Chair in political economy, which is a mouthful at, at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, which is a major、uh, think tank based in Washington D.C. I, I guess、um, I would consider you something like an, a revolving door because you went back and forth from the public sector to the private sector, the public sector and private sector back and forth. So <laughs> you, you worked at you. I think you worked at the. Treasury Department.、Uh, what else? State, the White National, House a couple times. National Security Council,、um, and you worked at Goldman, right, for a while.、Um, and you worked at the Stone. It was Albright Stonebridge Group, which is a strategic、uh, consulting firm, right? That's correct. But but,、um, but you've been at CSIS for a pretty long time now, I guess. Nine years now. Nine well, first years. of all, it's great to be here.、Yeah. Uh, delighted to be with you, Ken. Nice to yeah, nice yeah. to see you again. Yeah, and、um, delighted to do this. Yeah, yeah, great. So we met back in 1984, I believe.、Um, Actually, 1983, I think. Didn't and, you? And, when and, did you graduate? Well, I、college? came back end of 1983.、Um, okay. So I probably was early 1984. Okay.、Um, I had just graduated from college in University of Texas. Came back to、right. Japan, just floated back to Japan,、uh, and worked at a、uh, NPO, like NGO, <clears throat> called the Japan Center for International Exchange, which was started by my uncle,、uh, late uncle、uh, Tadashi Yamamoto. And you were an intern there, I guess, I believe, right? That- That's right. So I had started in about May or June of 1983. Some. Few months after I arrived in Japan, and、um, and your uncle offered me a job, and I got paid. Actually, <laughs> that's good. That's good. And,、uh, so, how, 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 how did you get? How did you get hooked up with Tadashi? So I had arrived in Japan in March 1983、uh, with really no job or any particular connections except one, which was a woman named Atsumi Keiko,、right. uh, who was a, a former colleague of my father. My father had worked at the World Bank, and he had been in charge of Japan way back in the fifties and sixties. And、um, he told me when I went to Japan, you should look up this woman Atsumi-san, and I did. And she got me actually not just one job but two. She introduced me to JCIE and your uncle Yamamoto-san,、uh, and you know they needed an English language sort of copy editor and general. Troubleshooter, so I、um, I did that,、uh, but I also she also got me a job at Nikkei Shimbun in the Eibu、mm. um, Nikkei, the Japan、That's、Economic、right. Journal, as it was called then, and so she was a great help to me at the especially the early stage. So, but what 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 brought you to Japan in, initially after college? Yeah, that's a good question, and I, I guess I usually cite three factors.、Um, one is my father because he had worked on Japan. We never. Traveled to Japan,、um, but he did a lot, and he would、um, bring back、uh, omiyage and and photographs, and so I had an interest in Japan from a very young age. But、um, it wasn't until after college I was、uh, working on Capitol Hill for a congressman as an intern,、mm-hmm. and I wasn't sure, sure what I wanted to do. And a colleague of mine, also a young guy, actually. In hindsight, he was very young, but he seemed much older. He was at lunchtime. He was studying a Japanese language textbook, and I asked him, "Why are you doing that?" And he said, "Well, I've got a job、uh, in Osaka in a few months. I'm moving out there for a year to teach English." And I sort of started thinking, "Oh, that sounds kind of interesting." And then the third factor that sealed the deal, which I used to hate to admit, 
was that I read this kind of romance novel called Shogun. It was um, a kind of a, a very popular, um, very sort of stylized picture of the first Englishman or one of the early Englishmen who came to Japan after the Bakufu after it, it Japan. It became a movie, right? Uh, with it became Tom a Cruise, sort of mini Tom Cruise, miniseries. Right? I think yeah. that's right. And and I read it and it was just fascinating. And, you know, of course, it had really nothing to do with Japan's real history, but it was it I mean, sort of loosely <laughs> based on that. But it kind of got my imagination going. So I thought, well, I could go to Japan. I don't know what else to do. So I just got <laughs> on a plane and went to Japan. Really? And, yeah. and how did you get a place to stay? You just, you know, um, I had so I guess I did have one other connection, which was I had been at an international high school and there were Japanese kids there. And one of my good friends, Kaomura Reiko-san, was her mother, uh, among other things, had a few um, apartments in different parts of Tokyo. And so she let me use one of them. I mean, I paid rent, but it was in um, Kakinokizaka, uh, sort of southwest of Shibuya on the Toyoko-sen. And um, so that was great. The first year I was there and then right. moved into my own place near Todai. So going back to your memory banks, when you first arrived in Japan from, I guess, Washington, D.C., right? That's where you grew up. That's right. Um, what was your first impression? I just loved it from the beginning. I mean, I remember riding in by train from Narita Airport. I could, it was too cheap to take. Actually, Narita Express didn't exist then in 1983. But the cheapest way to get in was just to take the regular, I think it was the regular was there a subway line out there? Anyway, it was a very ordinary train. It was crowded with people. And I just remember, you know, there was a lot of advertising and stuff, you know, different posters and things with, you know, a lot of Japanese that, of course, I couldn't read, a lot of colors and things. And I just remember being sort of impressed with all those sort of senses at the beginning. But I had a great start. I, I stayed in a little um, kind of a an inn, but not really an inn. It was more kind of a, a, a place to hang your hat in Okubo, you know, up near Shinjuku. And uh, it was a place that half of the tenants or people who stayed there were kind of gaijin like me who were staying for a short period in Japan. And the other half were, were Japanese day laborers. These are guys who would get up in the morning and go to a construction site, get hired for the day, and they'd work and then they'd come home. And I was in a room with five of these guys in bunk beds and, and they all smoked. You know, so they would smoke late at night after lights out and they would turn on the light at five o'clock in the morning and start smoking. Oh, and it was very it made a big impression on me. <laughs> but um, but it was great. No, I had a I had a wonderful time that first year and then was very fortunate to get the, the job with your uncle and at JCIE and, and at DK. And so everything okay. was great. So, so you got to move up from from a one room <laughs> sharing That's with right. five other guys. To <laughs> yeah, no, that was quite. And I remember it was 1,500 yen per night. So even then, that was pretty cheap, um, but it was great. And this was the 1980s, right? And this is when, right. you know, Japan as number one and, and, and that kind of, uh, you know, era. Reflecting back then, just the ordinary, you know, your routine days, what, what kind of impressions do you come away from that period? You know, Japan was doing pretty well at that point. It was before the bubble. This was the early 80s, not the right. later 80s. Sure. So Japan was doing okay. Obviously, the, you know, the the really extraordinary growth period had, had sort of tapered off. But Japan was a wealthy country and a very comfortable place to live. Um, it was easy to get around. There was actually already pretty good sort of English uh, signs and you know it was pretty friendly as a as a gaijin living there there weren't a lot of gaijin so there were many times when i would be in parts of tokyo maybe not in you know in ropongi or hiro it was not unusual to see gaijin but in other parts of tokyo i could easily be the only foreigner walking down the street and people still kind of staring and looking at you <laughs> um, so so that was a little strange but yeah, yeah. but um, but, and obviously change has changed a lot since then, but it wasn't ever uncomfortable. I always found it very comfortable to live there. And, um, you know, I was always, of course, very impressed with, uh, you know, with how well Japanese society worked. Um, you know, everything seemed to be very efficient and, and everything very clean, easy to find a place to eat a, a nice meal. Uh, it was just, it was a very comfortable place to live. Yeah. So 
I had a very happy first couple of years. <laughs> what, what, what about the, uh, the uh, drinking culture of, of Japan? It's different from the United States. Yeah, there was that. I mean, of course, I was in a slightly different situation because actually I should explain that the first year or maybe year and a half, I was doing like three different things. I was studying Japanese in the morning for three hours up in Yotsuya. Mm-hmm. And then I would go down to Hiro to JCIE and work in the afternoon for a few hours. And then I would go up to um, Kudanshta, uh, where I taught English, or actually I taught um, GMAT preparation exams for Japanese business people who are going to the U.S. to go to business school. And so I helped them do these kind of, you know, cram courses in how to, how to pass that test. And that was for three hours in the evening. So I was busy. I mean, I was I doing... See you know, I was doing a lot of stuff. And so I didn't have as much chance to kind of take advantage of those sort of traditions, like going out and drinking with the office. A little bit later, when I was more settled in at Nikkei, we would do that. And, you know, it was good fun. And um, <laughs> I, I, um, I I could drink a beer or two or a shochu. Mm-hmm. Shochu was very big back then, remember? Yeah, um, yeah. Maybe it still is, but it was. I think there was kind of a boom that it was taking right, on. Right, right. Well, I remember. I remember so, sharing more than a couple of beers with you. Probably. That's right. That's right. No, that was. Those were good times. Yeah. yeah. Fast forward to let's say you know like in in the nineteen nineties to nineteen you know the two thousands and when Japan went through the sort of lost decades. Um, what 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 changed? Do you think? You mean in Japan? In, what, in Japan, the world, I mean, me. what, yeah, or for you, um, let's say for, for Japan, for instance, just to start. Well, there. I think, you know, I think that, as you know, I mean, in the late 80s, there was this sort of last burst of, of um, kind of spectacular growth and, and maybe overconfidence as well, stimulated by some, you know, some probably policy mistakes that exacerbated this. And I think probably by the 90s, the problem was, you know, Japan had some fundamental structural problems. I mean, the demographic trends in Japan are really strong headwinds against growth because your population, you know, is now declining, but even then it was, you know, slowing dramatically and aging. And so I think that was kind of probably the fundamental factor. There were probably some policy mistakes as well. But, you know, Japan did have this sort of lost decade or two, although that's slightly exaggerated, you know, things were happening and it wasn't a completely stagnant time. But I must admit as a Japan hand, a Japan mm-hmm. expert uh, by then, uh, it was, uh, it, it went from being a very exciting thing to be doing and everybody kind of envious of people like me who spoke Japanese and, you know, mm-hmm. knew Japan in the mm-hmm. kind of late eighties, early nineties, to then being like a little bit of a, not a curse, but it was like, not so cool. (laughs) It was not cool to be a Japan expert in the nineties. And so a lot of us kind of reinvented ourselves as Asia experts, you know, because we Mm -hmm. knew the broad region and that, that kind of, um, for a period that was uh, kind of seen as advantageous, but I got to say, Japan is back. And now it's again, cool to be a Japan. Is that right? Oh yeah. But what changed uh, in, in, in Japan or in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, Japan sort of, I think st- Japan kind of stabilized and, and you know, got it's a little bit of its confidence back. I think you had maybe some uh, better policies, at least vis-a-vis the world, so that Japan was playing more of a role in the world that, that got people's attention. And then I'd say the interest interconnection of that with the the cultural soft power of Japan, which really took off over here, you know, with sushi craze, with anime, which really exploded, you know, in the, in the, probably in the nineties in particular here. And um, so I think there was kind of just a convergence of things that made Japan interesting again. Um, And then much more recently, I think now Japan is popular or, or interesting for people like in my profession and in the think tank or sort of scholarly world, because there's a lot of concern about China. And I think people realize that Japan is a really important ally of the United States. So we can talk more about that. But I think that's kind of the general trajectory of why Japan went from not so interesting to being incredibly interesting and important for Americans. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It kind of seems like, you know, during the what we call the Shoah period, 
which basically started in the 1920s and ended in the 19, late 1980s, we had this made in Japan model where we basically supplied mass production for mass consumption, <laughs> mostly in the, you know, in the developed world, right? And then we went into this uh, Heisei period from the late 80s uh, through 2019, I guess. It started off with Japan bashing, <laughs> but, but then, then it came to Japan passing. <laughs> And so, so my, my hope is that for the uh, for the new Lewa period going forward from 2019, 2020, and present day going forward, is that we have this uh, new model, which is not just made in Japan. During the Heisei period, we had this, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'll make it in your country, made by Japan. <laughs> and um, but for for the new period, from the Lewa period, um, I'm hoping made with Japan, and that that's why I, I titled this podcast <laughs> "Made with Japan." Um, <laughs> okay, that makes a lot of sense, and that's a way more sophisticated analysis than I laid out of kind of the changes. I think that's right, basically. I mean, now that you lay it out that way. I mean, I do think that I didn't say one of the reasons that Japan was so hot when I was in graduate school in the late 80s um, and starting out as a, as a kind of professional Japan expert was that, you know, we had this serious trade friction. And yeah, it was known here as Japan bashing. Um, and then it kind of, um, you know, which was based on this notion that Japan was making all this stuff and, and selling it to the U.S. and displacing a lot of American manufacturing, American jobs, and all exaggerated. And, and, and in hindsight, you know, we got ourselves worked up over something that wasn't as, as big a deal as it, as it seemed at the time. And then there was this period of the, you know, the so-called lost decades, but where, as you imply by your point about made um, by Japan, that um, you know, Japan was investing heavily in the United States. So at least in terms of U.S.-Japan relations, the, the whole image of Japan changed, partly because you slowed down and seemed like less of a threat, partly because Japan was investing heavily in the United States, you know, in automobile manufacturing and other, other uh, activity. And um, I think that really changed the, the perception of Japan. And then in the more recent period, and as you say, it's more a, um, a hope and a, an expectation, but I, I think there's good reason for believing that your notion of made with Japan is going to characterize this new period because, as I say, in particular, well, I'd say two things. One, you know, Prime Minister Abe, and, you know, I'm not commenting on his politics or policy, and, but I would say he did do something really important in, you know, in stepping out in the Asia region and the world and uh, contributed a lot to um, setting kind of rules and norms in particularly in the economic area. So, for example, promoting um, the Trans-Pacific Partnership even after the U.S. left uh, TPP um, or promoting so-called quality infrastructure um, or um, now there's a term which is maybe too wonky for your audience, but uh, data free flow with trust, which is an idea that mm -hmm. Abe introduced to enable data to flow across borders based on trust, meaning you know security, privacy. But those ideas were all. Oh, and by the way, one more big one was the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. This is something Abe-san introduced, and the Trump administration picked up that those very words and the kind of strategy as their organizing principle for their Asia strategy. A lot of questions about how much content there was in there or how much got done, but that's another question. At least the bumper sticker was, mm -hmm. was a Japanese idea. And now the Biden administration has endorsed that same concept. So Japan made some real contributions under Abe to international um, rulemaking and norm setting, especially in the economic and trade mm -hmm. areas. And so mm -hmm. that's uh, that's maybe the basis for you know your idea of mm -hmm. um, Japan being this kind of important partner, mm -hmm. certainly from a U.S. perspective going forward. I guess I said there were two factors. The other factor is the rise of China. Mm -hmm. And um, while that has been a spectacular 
thing and very good for the world and in many ways, um, especially for the 800 million Chinese who have risen from poverty to the middle class, but for the rest of us as well, because we can trade and benefit from investment in Japan and China um, and so forth. But, you know, China is also a challenge for mm -hmm. the United States and Japan and others. And I think that also has accentuated and highlighted the importance of Japan as a kind of market oriented democracy that, you know, wants to push out a preferred set of rules and norms mm -hmm. that the U.S. is very comfortable with. So, right. so I think it's an important partner in that sense. Right. Can we talk about democracy a little bit? Because like Japan's positioning in the world, in the world in Asia was that it was a dem democratic stronghold basically, but it kind of seems like the world <laughs> is having problems with democracy. Certainly in the United States, the last <laughs> several years, right. you guys are try trying to get over that. In Japan, we had, you know, we had a very stable, we have a very stable system, but there's no opposition to, to the, to the, you know, to the main party. Um, and so that raises questions about the validity of the democracy here. And just in general, it seems like democracy is having a problem. And so it kind of makes sense for China says, hey, we got the better model. Yeah. Well, I think time will tell. I still believe that as I think Winston Churchill said, you know, democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Mm -hmm. um, because yeah, it's messy and it's uh, sometimes doesn't work very well. And we've had some really bad times recently, including in the last couple of months still. But, um, you know, I think that it's partly, well, first of all, just in terms of the analysis of what's been the problem. I mean, I think partly we, have moved from a more sort of representative, at least here in the United States. I think part of the problem has been, we had a kind of, our, our founding fathers set up a kind of representative democracy where, you know, there'd be elected officials who would kind of work on behalf of um, ordinary people. And two problems. One, uh, they didn't always deliver, um, that is the elected representatives didn't deliver the goods for people. I mean, they did in a sort of big sense, like, you know, by, promoting uh, globalization and trade um, and technological change, all of that stuff has produced real benefits, but it's also created a lot of transitional pain for a lot of people in, especially not on the coasts of the United States. And they didn't really, that is elected officials, didn't do enough to address uh, that transitional pain. And I think, and I think people then, you know, rebelled against that. I think that's one problem. The other problem is maybe moving from this sort of representative indirect democracy to a more direct democracy, because now, you know, there's so much information that flows in so many directions and people have access to, you know, lots of different sources of information, some of which are not very reliable. Sure. Um, you know, when you and I were kids here in the United States, you know, there were three channels on television to watch NBC, ABC, CBS. And in the evening, everybody watched the news on one of those programs and they got all the same information, basically. Um, those programs still exist, but very few people watch them. In fact, you can tell how old you are because- Especially, the ad, young, especially young people, right? That's right. I was gonna say, you can tell that it's only for older people like us because the ads are all for like Viagra and, um, <laughs> and adult, adult diapers. Oh, <laughs> oh man, really? Oh. <laughs> it's very funny. Huh. But um, but the point is now people get their information from all these other sources, you know, as you know. So and again, a lot of it's not reliable. So so they're more empowered kind of to question maybe legitimately or not legitimately question what elected representatives are doing. And so I think that's that's something we we're going to have a really hard time fixing. But I think it's a really important key to strong democracy is to figure out a way to get people back on the same page. I mean, so that we at least are sharing the same facts, if not the same opinions, which is fine, but we're yeah. kind of not even getting the same facts. So, yeah. yeah, it seems like, it seems like the United States, I think I saw data somewhere that I think the millennials are, is the largest population bracket or is going to be compared to the baby boomers. 
And compared to baby boomers, the, the millennials are more diverse in terms of ethnicity and, you know, right. and, and things like that. But going forward in the United States, obviously, the millennials are going to be the, the, the largest political and economic force going forward. How, how does that how does that change the standing of the United States vis-a-vis the world? Because in the United States, it was always in the last, you know, last, I don't know 60, 60, 70 years, as long, as long as we've been alive, been sort of this sort of solid cornerstone or maybe not the corner not, not the corner maybe the center stone <laughs> um but but you know with with these quote american values how does that how does that american value evolve going forward with the millennials and well i, I mean i i think it's a great source of strength i mean the diversity of of our population um is is a great source of strength and i i don't think it undermines our values i think it it maybe changes some of them at the margin, but it, I think it's still, uh, I think it, it strengthens the basic values of our country. We're going through a lot of important conversations now about, about race, about gender, about equity, which I think are very important. And I think in the long term, they're going to be very good for us that we've addressed a lot of those problems in our society. And millennials are at the forefront of trying to challenge some of those traditional structures so I'm actually very optimistic about that. I mean, I do think that we have some, you know, still lots of problems and we haven't solved all of those issues. And we have some structural problems in our democracy, going back to the democracy, in that, you know, you're right, the biggest group is millennials, and most of them tend to be in urban areas or at least suburban areas. Um, but our the structure of our government. Uh, favors people who aren't in those areas, you know, who are in more rural mm-hmm. areas. That's still true. And those people tend to be sort of, you know, whiter and and more male and and traditional and you know older and frankly have less education as well. And so I think there's still that that structural bias in our political system, which which is a problem. But I, I think in general, demographically, we will be shifting more and more towards that sort of newer newer group and the newer attitudes and, and approaches and attitudes that they have. So I, I'm very optimistic about that. You know, it'll change our posture in the world, but, but I think we'll still, you know, if, if we can get through this transitional period and solve some of those underlying problems, I think the U S will be even a stronger beacon for, um, you know, for a lot of people around the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, we also have to keep our doors open and that's that's a critical issue i mean immigration has been a contributor to that diversity um and to our strength um you know and and there's you still see these statistics about something like 50% of the companies in silicon valley you know are run by you know people who weren't born in the united states mm-hmm, right. uh, i don't quote me on that exact statistic but it's a substantial disproportionate mm-hmm. number of people who are immigrants and that's just a, an enormous sense of strength uh, for us, all of us, you know, m- m- almost all of us, you know, are from somewhere else within a couple of generations. Sure. And so that's a real source of strength. If we, you know, shut down our borders and make it more and more difficult for people to come in, which we are doing in many respects, notwithstanding an immediate issue in the border where more people are coming in, you know, the, the general trend has been, you know, to discourage immigration. And, and that's worrisome because we really need that jolt of new mm-hmm. energy and blood and and um ambition that mm-hmm. immigrants bring sure by the yeah. way i didn't say you know when you were saying that the chinese think that their model may be better the more authoritarian model you know mm-hmm. again we'll see i i think certainly it has performed better on for example addressing the covid-19 problem after some early very big mistakes and and lack of transparency, which I think in itself is a problem. But, you know, they've clearly organized things better and they've gotten their economy going again. That's certainly true. But I do think there's still a lot of things that, you know, China has to deal with that that raise big questions about their long-term trajectory. I mean, I'm not predicting that they're going to fail, but I do think, you know, they've got a huge demographic problem. So one small statistic is that in 1950, basically at the start of the People's Republic of China, there were about 500 million Chinese. 
Today, there are 1.4 billion Chinese. That number is going to peak within the next five years, just as it did in Japan in 2010. And then the population is going to start declining pretty sharply and probably by 2100. So 150 years after that initial start of the People's Republic, they're going to be back at 500 million, which is a sort of catastrophic decline well, in the well, number well, of Chinese. By, by when? What, what's the 2100. So, 2100, I mean, that's okay, right, right. So and and so so it's gonna it went up a peak and it's gone down yeah, again back yeah. to where it started 150 years earlier. Right. Again, if we talked earlier about Japan's demographic challenges, that that's a, a catastrophic challenge for China, particularly because Japan was already a rich country mm-hmm. when it started to right. age yeah, and yeah, I agree. You know, and for the population decline. China is not a, a generally wealthy country. It, yeah. It's you know, overall economy yeah. is big, per capita, it's not so wealthy. Yeah, in Japan, most of the wealth is in the elder generation because they experienced the growth period. But in China and other developing countries, I think most of the wealth is not in the elders, but it's probably more in the younger generation, right? So that's right. That's right. Uh, but um, they're getting older and then they, yeah. you know, won't have as many people to support, working people to support them. Mm-hmm. So that's one big headwind for China. Um, there's also, you know, environmental challenges, um, financial challenges, and then there's a sort of fundamental question as to whether um, they can break out of the so-called middle income trap and become a, a really high value added economic system when they have this tight control and tightening control, getting tighter mm-hmm. and tighter mm-hmm. politically. You know, they've done pretty well despite that control, but there's sort of, to me, there's a sort of, I have a gut feeling that it's going to be really hard for them to be more and more innovative and more value added in the way they do things economically, if they're really tightening these controls politically, but they really can't loosen up those controls either because then people may question the legitimacy of the communist party and or certainly that's the way I think Xi Jinping sees it. So I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that China is going to continue on this rapid growth trajectory. Mm, I, I'm not predicting failure. And, and by the way, if China did fail, it would be a much bigger problem for us. Than <laughs> right, right, than right. Successful China. Don't get me wrong. This is not something I'm wishing for, hoping for or predicting. But yeah. I do think they've got some real headwinds. And I, th- I think, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we could be looking back the way we are on Japan in the bubble and saying, wow, that was kind of an anomaly and, you know, a last breath of kind of maybe exuberance and overconfidence in a way. And and in fact, they, they slowed down dramatically. That's possible. It kind of seems like Japan was able to go through three decades of low growth <laughs> just because we had we had the uh, uh, the what do you call it the, the the growth prior to it and had the uh, right. um, the uh, what do you call it S- stock in the in, in yep. the economy to support it. But for for China, by the way, I, I think that stock is a really important point. I think that stock was both financial and kind of psychological. Yeah. You know, because you had come from the devastation of World War II and had built this incredibly powerful, successful mm-hmm. country, not just economy. And that created a great psychological buffer um, as, you know, as the, the country slowed right, and aged. Right. Yeah. So I think we were to look at it positively. We were able to go through 30 years of buffer right. <laughs> of, of low growth. Um, but for China, not having growth with with the divergence of the have and the have nots with such a huge population with the city and the rural, rural area. When you right. lose that growth, that, that seems like a big society problem and, you know, just politically problem, problem internally. And when they have problem internally, they'll probably go external, <laughs> which makes things a little bit uh, uncomfortable for. Right. I mean, it's a little oversimplified, but that has been said often that, you know, mm-hmm. when that the Chinese Communist Party has two basic sources of legitimacy. Um, one is economic growth and the other is nationalism. And when. Uh, you know, when or if economic growth slows substantially, then they may push out the nationalist part of their, you know, source of strength. And that means that's bad news for Japan, by the way, in the first yeah. instance, but, but more broadly, I think for the world, 
that's that's worrisome. Now, again, that's probably oversimplified, but yeah, sure. but I do think I do think growth is really critical to China, and you know the prospects are not as strong as they were a decade ago. Do, do, do you think the lower growth prospects for China is the reason why they're making more aggressive stance towards Hong Kong and Taiwan? Maybe. I mean, I think they. It's possible that Xi Jinping sees this as the moment of maximum strength and greatest risk going forward, and so they want to take advantage of this. He wants to take advantage of this period to try to reintegrate all of what China considers to be, you know, their greater China. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, so that may be part of it. But I, I think you know there are people who uh, there's a, a bit of a debate here in the United States about whether um, Xi Jinping is acting out of kind of greed or fear, you know, whether this is, you know, out of confidence and a sense that China can do what it wants and reestablish its greater glory of, you know, ancient history, um, or whether he's afraid, you know, he's afraid that that Mm -hmm. if they don't keep uh, the growth wheel growing, if they don't Mm -hmm. take advantage of this opportunity, um, they're going to, they're going to miss their moment. So um, I think we'll, you know, we'll see how it plays out. I, I, I mean, I sound, I sound a little too um, pessimistic about China's prospects. I mean, China has surprised us so many times over the last 50 years that um, I wouldn't underestimate their prospects. But mm-hmm. I do think it, it's also wrong to say, you know, they're on this kind of inevitable upward trajectory and they're going to sort of become the dominant player either in the world or even in the Asia-Pacific region where they mm. historically, you know, did have a very dominant sure. position. Um, by the way, I had this uh, Chinese wine the other day, uh-huh. red wine. It was excellent. Uh-huh. It was really, really good. It was good. really Western China yeah. somewhere. I don't know the region, but it was really, really good. So, I mean, uh-huh. so, so, I mean you know, I mean, obviously yeah. a lot of Chinese know what they're doing. <laughs> so. Yeah, no, absolutely. absolutely. No, there's great, uh, great talent and ability uh, there. And I think, uh, I think if they can tap into that and keep that going, I think they are going to be formidable. Yeah. How has the administration, what's the biggest change versus United States and China with the prior administration to the current administration? What 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 has changed and what hasn't changed vis-a-vis China for the United States? So I think there's a lot of continuity, actually. Uh, you know, the, the Trump administration, for all of its maybe controversial policy positions, I think did um, shine a light on some of the really competitive aspects of our relationship with China uh, that maybe had been understated or underexplored before. So the competition over technology, for example, something that Chinese have invested heavily in their own uh, technological capability, including through policies that we would consider not reasonable or fair or by the rules, um, like stealing technology or forcing the transfer of technology when massively subsidizing some of their domestic champions. All of this was going on before Trump. And there was some, particularly late Obama, I think there was much more realization of of the problems that that posed. And, And the Obama administration the last year or two was getting a lot more kind of a lot more skeptical about China and and was getting tougher in their policies. But the Trump people certainly took it to another level. And and I think that is that sort of awareness and concern is still here in the Biden administration, particularly in in certain areas. I think they're certainly very concerned about the technology uh, competition and you know, and and they're probably more concerned about human rights issues in China. So I think there's going to be even tougher position on those issues, probably less obsession in the Biden administration with trade deficits and and those issues. So you won't see probably massive tariffs and so forth on China, but a lot of continuity there and maybe a little more targeted response so that it won't be just shutting everything down with China or trying to decouple our economies but more selectively, um, you know, trying to disengage in some areas or brush China back in certain areas. And importantly, much more emphasis on investing in U.S. strength. I think the Biden administration has signaled very clearly that, you know, obviously priority number one is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and then uh, and the economic disruption of the, of the virus. 
but then to invest heavily in you know domestic infrastructure, R and D, you know, education, the caring economy, all the things we need to do to be strong at home, and that's a that's a difference with the Biden people. I mean, Trump talked about making America great again, but he didn't do a lot to invest in in that strength. And so uh, the Biden people, I think, are going to put much are putting much more emphasis on that. But it's going to be a scratchy relationship with China over the next, I mean, not just in the next three or four years, but beyond that, we have a lot of elements of competition in our relationship. Let me ask you about TPP because when when Trump pulled out, it seemed like it seemed like to me Japan kind of scrambled to try to keep TPP kind of together. And and when the UK got kind of kicked or kicked themselves out of the EU, they're looking for something, and so they they kind of made motions towards you know <laughs> all the way from yeah, from the Atlantic to the Pacific. Right. And, and China is also, I guess, is making some motions about it. And so, um, <laughs> what what do you think? <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, I think the Trump decision on his third day in office in 2017 to withdraw the United States from TPP was a catastrophic mistake. I, I actually think history will show it was one of his biggest mistakes in policy um, because this was an agreement that we had led and negotiated and pushed for, and it was very much in our interest economically, but also strategically in terms of our position in Asia. And frankly, in just in dealing with China, it was really important. You know. Thank God, Japan did step up and save the agreement. And Japan, back here, it may be seen there as scrambling, but I mean, it was seen as very strategic here uh, for Japan and and bold for Japan to step up and and lead this remaining group of eleven countries, you know, over the finish line uh, to get the deal done. That was it's very highly valued and and praised here. You know, now we've got the U.S. out. You've got Japan. In there with the remaining countries, and then as you say, the UK interested in joining. UK is looking for friends and you know a role in the world now that it's pulled itself away from uh, from the EU, and that's credible. I think to have you know the geography doesn't make sense, but it sort of makes sense for a country like the UK to be mm-hmm. in TPP, and I think that's definitely a possible prospect mm-hmm. over the next year or two. Uh, China joining TPP seems a little more far fetched to me. Because um, you know the standards are very high for China, and particularly things like there are a lot of rules in TPP about the state's role in the economy, like what state-owned enterprises can do in the in the marketplace, and constraining those things. And China isn't ready at all to you know to uh, accept mm-hmm. rules like that that are so constraining on their state-owned enterprise. Enterprises, and there are many other areas where it's going to be difficult for China to meet those standards. And I can't see Japan or Australia or Singapore, the existing members of TPP, lowering the standards、sure. in order to let China in. So、mm-hmm. I kind of see the Chinese interest in TPP as kind of ten percent real debate about whether China ought to be part of this kind of、mm-hmm. regional, high standard、uh, international trade. Agreement for China's benefit, and ninety percent kind of a strategic play by by Xi Jinping to show that China's kind of the leader of, or engaged at least in you know regional Asia and regional、uh, numbers like TPP. Is the RCEP? It's it's a wider sort of framework. Is it the, the standards are lower、it's、in RCEP? Broader but th- broader but thinner. I mean, it's it's shallower. Broader but shallower okay,、um, trade okay. agreement, yeah, involving China and Japan, and、mm-hmm. you know, fourteen and thirteen other Asia Pacific countries, not the United States, not India, because India pulled out at the last minute. You know, that deal we didn't take very seriously here in Washington while it was being negotiated, and still、mm-hmm. after it was signed last year, there are a lot of people who think, well, it's not a very serious agreement because it's not very deep. I think, and many other analysts here feel we should take it more seriously because it is a deal, and、mm-hmm. it does bring together all these Asian countries and not the United States, and so, and it could be built upon to become the kind of centerpiece of Asian regional integration. And the U.S. has always positioned itself, you know, since basically since 1989 when we helped found APEC, you know, the Asia Pacific、mm-hmm. Economic yep, Cooperation yep. Group.、Mm-hmm. 
we positioned ourselves as a Pacific power. You know, we're not in Asia geographically, but we are a Pacific power. And so we've always tried to say we're part of this region, you know, broadly mm -hmm. defined. Sure. But that means we got to do things like TPP or other trade agreements. And so, you know, I think RCEP is, is something the U.S. should be, you know, more worried about than we are. What, what, what other things worry you right now about Asia-Pacific stability economically, politically? Well, I think, you know, a lot of it does go back to China because, because China is pushing out its its policies, both in, you know, building islands and, and you know, <laughs> challenging countries like Japan territorially, and in, in your case, in the East China Sea. But, uh, but they're also pushing out economic coercion. You know, they've been intimidating Australia most recently because Australia dared to suggest that there ought to be an, an international investigation of the origins of the coronavirus. So they're being economically sanctioned in, in, in effect. China's done this to the Philippines, to Korea, obviously to Japan um, in, the, in the recent past. And that's worrying a lot of people in the region. So it's creating a lot of conversation. But on the other hand, everybody needs the Chinese market, um, needs you know, to trade and invest with China. China's just a big player in the region. So nobody wants to or can cut themselves off from China. So I think that's the central kind of issue in the Asia Pacific region is how are we gonna live with you know, a big, powerful China that doesn't play exactly by the rules that, that we all wanna play mm. by. And of course there are other issues going on. I mean, just in pure economics, not in policy terms, I'm, I'm sort of a policy guy. So I always go straight to the policy stuff, but you know, just in terms of what's happening in the, in the marketplace, you know, there's shifting supply chains, sort of globalization model of China being the hub of these global supply chains inputs kind of come into China and then are put together and then exported from a China export base. That's kind of unwinding, partly because of long before COVID-19, because of, you know, China is a more expensive place to do business now. And, you know, and it's not growing quite as fast as it was. COVID has exacerbated this and caused people to think, well, maybe I need to hedge and have, you know, mm -hmm. production in different places. And so that's been beneficial for Vietnam, for Bangladesh, for other countries on Japan's, on China's periphery. So that trend and how that unfolds and develops is going to be, I think, one of the big sort of underlying economic mm -hmm. trends that, that are worth watching. With the sort of the new power balance unfolding with the new administration in, in, in the United States, what about South Korea? What's their what's their positioning? You think? Yeah, South Korea. You know, it's a big economy. It's tenth or twelfth in the world. Um, you know, one of the biggest in Asia. A very sophisticated economy that you know, in particular, technology, in particular, like semiconductors, really at the you know state of the art, and 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 so really an important country, important middle power. You know, an ally of the United States. So from our perspective. You know, this is a really important country that we need to be working with for economic reasons because of the North Korea challenge uh, to deal with China, frankly. And yet, you know, there are a couple of big problems. China, South Korea is still very much in the shadow of China. And I think they're worried about even more than Japan or other countries antagonizing China or breaking off from China. There's still kind of an interdependence there. Um, and a fear factor, frankly, to some extent. That's one problem. And then the other problem for South Korea is its relationship with Japan, which is, you know, I know a very difficult issue, and I don't want to get into all the historical issues. I, I wouldn't dare kind of pronounce on those issues. But whatever the cause of the problem, it's a real problem today for uh, the United States that two of our best allies are not getting along. <laughs> very well. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we got a lot of problems out there, you know, from health pandemics to climate change to North Korea, to, you know, the rise of a, a difficult China. And we need Japan and, and, uh, and South Korea to be working better together. North Korea, that doesn't concern you so much? 
Yeah, it does. No, it's a huge, a huge concern. And, and that concern is going up again here mm-hmm. because there've been some new, you know, uh, missile tests and so forth. And, and I think as long as you've got this very sort of non-transparent and unpredictable, well, actually they are somewhat predictable <laughs> in, in what they do up in North Korea, but they're, but they're, you know, they're just hard to get a handle on uh, and they've got nuclear weapons. Uh, and, you know, that's a, that's a real, a real challenge for the United States. And, and it's the conversation about that is picking up here again. It was kind of quiet for a while, but there's a lot of concern about this. You know, it's a big issue for the United States and Japan to, uh, to deal with because, you know, we can't allow a nuclear arms race in the region. We can't uh, have North Korea, you know, threatening its neighbors like Japan and throwing lobbing missiles, you know, into Japanese waters and so forth. So it's, it's a huge issue. And of course, for Japan, there's the abductee issue, which also needs to be resolved. Sure. So there's a lot that has to be dealt with there. And it's, it's a high priority here in, in Washington. Well, well it's, not, it's not your geographic area of expertise, I understand. But <clears throat> why is it that the United States makes such a strong stance for Iranians having nuclear capability, whereas North Korea already has it? Yeah. And, and you know, and I guess Iran is supposed to be a democratic state. In form, whereas, you know, in North Korea, there's one guy that can just push the button, basically, right? Yeah. Well, as you say, it's not really my area of expertise, but I would say we're, you know, we're concerned about both countries, both North Korea and Iran. I mean, obviously, Iran having a nuclear weapon in that region that's so unstable and has so mm-hmm. many uh, American interests involved, you know, including one of our most important allies in Israel that mm-hmm. is a, you know, directly threatened by, by this. Um, well, Japan's is, Japan's threatened. <laughs> and then Japan is, no, and we, that's why I say it's a high priority. Yeah, yeah. They're equally high priorities. Yeah. Um, so we are, you know, I think, I think the Biden administration is, is very serious about both of those issues. And, and it's interesting that the number two person at the state department, Wendy Sherman, she was the chief negotiator on the, well, both the Iran deal, but also before that on North Korea for many years. Mm-hmm. So I think she's very you know, involved in trying to address both of those, those challenges. Another area, I'm really disappointed with Myanmar. Yeah. Because I, th- I thought there was so much potential in that country. I, I visited there about eight years ago and, and, I, and it was, you know, starting to open up and. Uh, it, yeah, I totally agree. It's it's a wonderful country. It has huge potential. You know that before World War II, it was um, it was actually the I think biggest or most powerful economy in Asia, Japan included. I think mm-hmm. uh, before Japan really took off, and so it's a huge. It's got huge mineral resources, great you know capabilities, um, and it's just been so badly governed. And yeah, there was this moment of hope for you know for a few years you know, but the military was still lurking in the background. I think Aung San Suu Kyi was probably not quite the, you know, the kind of leader that could really push through all of this. I mean, I still hope that, you know, she's released and that we get back to a sort of democratic Myanmar, but yeah, it's, it's doesn't quite make sense, but in a sort of an instinctive way, having visited there a couple of years ago myself, it's like some countries you think, wow, this country doesn't deserve this kind of government or this kind of, you know, situation. It's, it's such a wonderful country, very rich mm-hmm. in all senses. And, and people, people uh, are basically nice, I thought. Very, you know, gentle, sort of yeah. uh, friendly people, at least in my, you know, limited mm-hmm. experience there. And they just don't deserve this, this uh, cruel and brutal uh, military regime that is doing just awful things. It's a huge priority. By the way, I think this is going to be a potential issue in U.S.-Japan relations because, mm-hmm. you know, Japan feels a special connection to Myanmar because sure. of, you know, the early World War to work together to, to liberate Myanmar from British rule. Um, and then, you know, since then, a big investment by Japan, investment in sort of an economic sense, commercial sense. There's a lot of companies, a lot of business uh, going on there. And I think a Japanese also investment in 
Myanmar's development. So you see, you know, JICA and um, Foreign Ministry, other uh, organs of the of the Japanese government, um, really on the ground trying to make a difference in Myanmar, and then even engaging in sort of political brokering, which is an unusual thing for Japan to do between some of the different mm-hmm. political groups in in quietly, you know, doing that in Myanmar. And so Japan's made this big investment in this country. And now it's all gone sort of wrong. And, you know, for the U.S. perspective, you know, we're ready to really impose sanctions and, and be very tough on, on the military junta. And Japan is understandably a little more conflicted about this. I mean, it's been very encouraging that Foreign Minister Motegi has made very strong statements and um, the defense minister signed a joint statement on Myanmar, which I think is the first time a Japanese defense minister has ever made a joint statement like that in the, in, you know, in, in post-war history. So it, it was very strong, but I think when it comes down to, are there going to be joint sanctions and so forth? I think it's going to be a very hard decision for, for Japan, mm. but on the positive side of that story, you know, to get to your theme of made with Japan, I mean, Japan has really played an important role and a kind of understated role in Southeast Asia for many years. Um, It's been investing a lot of money in the region, again, providing a lot of development assistance and capacity building um, support across Southeast Asia. And, you know, still has a a, a bigger economic footprint in Southeast Asia than China does. China's, you know, growing faster, but Japan's got a stock of investment and, Mm -hmm. and sort of you know, literal investment and also kind of political investment in that region. J- Japan ranks very highly in opinion polls across Southeast Asia um, as a as a trusted uh, partner, and that's that's a real asset for Japan and frankly for the United States too, because you know we're not quite as popular <laughs> anywhere, <laughs> but certainly <laughs> in, in that part of the world um, as we used to be or could mm-hmm. be, and so. So Japan is a really important partner in in that really critical part of the world, which because collectively that's a that's a, mm. a big um, region with a lot of economic potential. Mm. So I think certainly from an American point of view, you know we're looking to Japan as a partner, you know, in Southeast Asia, in East Asia, and you know working with Korea and Australia and other allies on joint security challenges and dealing with a rising China, you know, in a broader sense, we're looking to Japan as a, you know, leader in economic rulemaking and norm setting um, across the Asia Pacific and, you know, the world. So I think it's a, a huge opportunity for Japan uh, to step up and, and, um, and do things that I think are in its interest, but also definitely you know, mm. in the interests of, of the U.S. and, mm. you know, and I think the world. Well, that's kind of a nice closing because I was thinking for my last question for you right. is, you know, what, what's, what, see, Japan for me, the, it's, ne- it's never, it's never going to be the United States. It's never going to be China, right? And we're, it, we're still the, for now, the third largest e- economic, uh, you know, country in the world. And so what, what's, what's the Japan model? It's not going to be a superpower, obviously, with you know, nuclear weapons and that kind of stuff. But I think you kind of answered my my, my last question with, with your comments. But if you had some very, very last comment. Look, Japan is uh, maybe not going to be a superpower, but it um, doesn't have to be. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a, a, a large economy. And even if it drops from number three to number five, that's still big. And it most importantly brings, you know, tremendous capabilities in economics and commerce, you know, technology, uh, really state of the art, state of the world. And also importantly in, in, its, uh, in its values and the way it uh, delivers the goods uh, to um, other countries. So I think um, it's going to be a very important country, particularly in the Asia Pacific region. You know, again, particularly at a time when China is trying to assert itself as the kind of leader of the region. Um, and I think there's really no doubt about that now that that's their ambition to be the center of, of the 
broader Asia region as it was for 5,000 years or whatever. But Japan never really accepted that. Japan was obviously very connected to China and was, you know, a lot of influence from China in Japan, including kanji and, you know, mm -hmm. pottery and, and sure. Buddhism and many other things. All of that was true. But at the same time, you know, Japan never kowtowed to China and uh, always was kind of a thorn in China's side in a way historically. And, mm -hmm. and I don't mean to emphasize the kind of the, the negative side of that <laughs> position, but it's a reality too. Japan's too big for China to just step over and ignore. Mm -hmm. And in a more positive sense, you know, Japan is really a bulwark of, of stability and, you know, democracy. Um, in in this critical part of the world. And so from the U.S. point of view, just a critical partner in, um, you know, everything we do out in that part of the world and beyond. Great. Well, thank you, Matthew. This has been great. Um, you know, you've been a longtime good friend of mine and you certainly be a good friend yeah. of Japan and your perspectives from outside of Japan is always, always very, very uh, enlightening. So this is great. a lot of fun. Well, this is a lot of fun. It's been a lot of, a lot of fun. I'm sorry that I can't be there in person. <laughs> uh, my last international trip over a year ago was to Japan and I miss it. I'd like to get back there. And as soon as it's possible again, I'll, I'll be back. Yeah. We'll welcome you anytime. So. <laughs> okay. Thanks, Ken. Enjoyed it. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining Made with Japan. If you enjoyed this podcast, may I ask two favors from you? One, please tell your friends. Two, please subscribe to Made with Japan wherever you find your podcast. Thank you so much. Arigatou gozaimashita. Till the next time, have a good day or good evening wherever you are.